there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Amongst that list of people to have been crowned world course fishing champion is Preston-based angler Dave Roper. Dave took the title back in 1985 on the Riverano in Italy, famously beating the Italians into second place on their own patch. Judging by the rack of salmon flies in front of you that you're just finishing off tying, that must seem like an awful long time ago, not only in terms of the win, but also match fishing generally, more of which we'll chat about later. For now, obviously, I'd like to go back to 1985 and beyond. So to kick things off, what are your recollections of that memorable day? Well, obviously going back a fair while, I remember the draw, I remember everybody talking about maybe an MPEG was the thing, and I didn't, I was about 10 pegs from the end. And um, I seem to remember the Italian Trabuco was about five pegs to me right, and Milo, who was another local favourite, was about four to me left. So in other words, I was in the middle of them. But I decided that I was going to feed a lot of maggots on about a 30, oh, 20, 25 metre line and try and bring the fish up into the water. And fortunately for me, it worked. Was the decision based on practice sessions under similar conditions or was it down to intuition on the day? We'd practised for a fortnight prior to the week that it was closed down. And then, of course, there's a week's break before the first match, which I seem to think was on a Saturday, and the individual match was on the Sunday. And at that stage, has the team already been chosen, or is it still a squad eager to impress? It's a squad of seven. The team was chosen the night before the Saturday team match, and then he chose his individual to fish on the Sunday, which was the individual match, of course. So is the final selection then based solely on what the manager sees during that practice, or is it perhaps a composite of that plus other observations, or possibly even something he pretty much knows before the squad flies out? It's just an overall thing, it's just what he sees. I mean, it wasn't necessarily on what you'd caught, it's what he thought you would catch uh, when the time come, I suppose. I never really asked him that. Taking a step back just for a moment, it might also help to be able to picture what the match stretch of the Arno was actually like, and what, with the squad's extensive experience, would be an obvious approach in terms of tactics and bait. The water itself was in fact a natural river that had been dammed, and uh, it created this huge canalised section of the river that was sort of 20 feet deep in the middle. Species-wise, there were uh, chub, there were a little carp called a carasio and also bigger carp that went up to about five six pound and it were your job to target those species of course as well as there were catfish that were very much the bottom feeders you know okay so the start is signaled which is probably a relief after all the build-up and the match gets tentatively underway from your point of view how did it then progress were there any problems highlights or requirements for tactical rethinking on the hoof well, what you get is you get a five-minute pre-baiting session. So the whistle goes, for example, at five to three, and then at three o'clock you get the all-in. So you have five minutes to feed, and all I did was loose-feed maggots on this line or already described, and uh, trying to bring these fish up into about five, six foot of water, bearing in mind it was 20 foot deep out there. And the like first those. fish was one of these carassios that were very, very slippy. They weighed about 12 pounds. 14 ounce, you couldn't get your hand around them properly and my first one went back like a bar of soap so that were a good start 
And then steadily, it started to happen for me. And I was catching these, an odd chub. And then with about an hour and a half to go, my first decent carp came along that weighed about four pound. Took a while to get in because we weren't fishing particularly heavy. And um, the second carp, which was of a similar size, came along about three quarters of an hour later. And uh, I finished the match off by catching two or three of these catfish that weighed about a pound apiece. And uh, that was it, all on a waggler, all on about a 25-metre line. And do you get any sort of indication from anyone while the match is going on how things might be going? I remember asking Ian Heaps the same question, and the first he knew about his win was when Stan Smith came over to congratulate him. They obviously had no walkie-talkies or mobile phones back then. Well, we didn't. We didn't have walkie-talkies. It was just what people were telling me on the bank. I mean, there must have been ten or 12,000 people milling around on both banks, and uh, you were hearing that you were doing OK, but you didn't know for sure. I mean, Trebuco, the Italian, I think he finished second, and uh, Phil Williams, the Welsh lad, he finished, let me get it right, he finished third off the MPEG to me left, but Trebuco was the danger, and I think he finished up with about a kilo and a half less than me, something like that. Even so, it must still be an anxious time, particularly if you know you're in with a shout, going through the full official weighing procedure. Um, they told me I won it. I mean, I know you don't believe it but uh, at the time, but I, I was told that I won it. And waiting for the official result to filter through must also be an anxious time. So describe to us how it feels when rumour finally becomes reality. No, well, nothing else will ever happen to you like that before or since. It's just a complete one-off feeling. And um, never to be repeated, I doubt. Now, being a coarse angler myself, I don't know these things, so forgive me for having to ask, but has anyone ever won the world title more than once? English lads, yeah. Bob Nudd won it, I think, three times. And Alan Scotthorn, I think, four times. And then Ian Heaps, Kevin Ashes, myself, Tommy Pickering, Dave Thomas, I think we've all won it once apiece. There's a Frenchman that's won it two or three times. I can't remember his name. No matter. It's homegrown talent that's important here. And with that in mind, when Ian Heaps was talking about his 1975 win, he described how being led up to the stage with the Union flag and the national anthem playing had caught his emotions completely unprepared, reducing him to tears. So how did that process affect you? I don't remember any tears, but I certainly felt the emotion part of it. Because, yes, you're representing your country. And uh, it's natural enough, isn't it? Now, I'm told that your speciality, if there is such a thing at this sort of level, is fishing with bloodworm from a pole. But on the Arno, your victory couldn't have been further removed from that, as you won fishing maggot under a waggler from a conventional rod and reel, demonstrating, if ever it was necessary, that versatility is the key to success at world level. Oh, it is. If you can only do one thing, you don't get picked. That's a fact. But, I mean, we fished on another venue, the Dama Canal in Belgium, I think in either 88 or 89, and that was a pole and bloodworm venue, and he picked a team to suit. But when it came to it, it had changed, and a lot of fish were caught on the waggler and the maggot, and uh, we won it. So you had to be versatile, you wouldn't, have got, you wouldn't get picked. Define the term versatility. How wide-ranging an ability do you need to be to compete successfully at international level? Well... To be a complete match angling, that lends itself also to ledgering, fishing with a swim feeder, but you tend to stick to your strengths and what the local waters where you live dictate to you. 
and um, round here, bloodworm was with strength, pole fishing and bloodworm. But we still had to go and do other things, which we did. And did he deliberately practice those other techniques to be proficient in case the need for one of them ever arose? Yeah, I fished on the Ribble a lot. Waggler, fishing for chub, which were a similar size to the carp I caught. So that was bloody good practice. So from your experience, and bearing in mind the path match fishing seems to have taken over recent times, do you think that young would-be stars of the future need to get out and about to as diverse a range of venues as possible to acquire those skills? Generally speaking, yeah, I'd say yes. But these days it's difficult to travel a long way on a Sunday and get back because of the traffic. I mean, in the 70s and early 80s, it was a sight easier than what it is now. Now again, with my limited experience of course match fishing, today there seems to be a lot of one venue or one method specialists who, while they may be good, would struggle to do well if you took them away from the comfort zone. That's always been the case. But is it not more prevalent now? Going back to Ian Heaps, he told me he'd work on a daily basis at either speed fishing or different techniques. For example, most evenings he would stay out until he caught at least a hundred fish using, say, the bread punch. Our local venue was Lancaster Canal, which lent itself to bloodworm fishing, and not always on the pole. I mean, it was a float and a waggler across the canal one stage before the carbon fibre poles came out. But even so, that didn't mean to say you couldn't travel. There were always other venues that were of a similar nature, and the same methods worked. Now here's a question I've fired at a number of England internationals, including sea anglers from both the shore and the boat squads. Why is it that so many northern anglers seem to do so well? Again, to quote Ian Heaps, he put it down to having to work so much harder up here, particularly in his day when pollution was much more of a factor, so that when they went to fish matches elsewhere with so many more fish, being used to working harder for results would automatically give them a head start. It could be right, but they always used to say the further south you went, the easier it got. And in my day, that's a fact. OK, so it's now 2012, which makes it 27 years since your World Championship win. But presumably, there would have been other notable successes either preceding or following the big day. Yeah, I suppose so. The local Big Thousand Peg match was called the Lancashire Evening Post. And I, I won that in the late 70s. There was the um, Northern Anglers Grand Match, which was six, 700 pegs. I won that a similar time, without just remembering the year. The Northwest Pole Championships, I won that back-to-back years, 86 and 87. The Pole Championship of Great Britain on Mallory Park, I won that. And I think that was around about 1988-89, something like that. The Canal Championships of Great Britain, I won that in, uh, I think it would have been around about 86-87, which was on the Lancaster Canal. And there must also be some I can't remember. What about occasions where, although you may not have beaten everyone else, you still nonetheless came away feeling pleased with yourself, having taken another step forward in your overall learning programme? I'm sure that must be the case, but I mean, I can't specify just which one or two it might have been. You know, we're going back a long while here. There are probably a lot of very good, versatile and capable anglers out there who, for a variety of reasons, will never reach the levels of success you achieved. It's possibly as simple as just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. So are there any examples you came across of anglers who were good enough to make it, but in the end never actually did? 
No, I, I can't really think of anybody at all. They went into a, um, a potential championship anglers record in great detail before you got a chance to fish what they called an eliminator and I fished two or three of those over the years and um, if you shone out or you know you'd get picked for the squad that's what happened I honestly do think if you were good enough you were there I don't think there were a lot of luck involved no I'm sure there wasn't certainly in terms of consistency but just perhaps there might have been someone else out there who, if the timing had been different, was good enough to have made it all the way to the top. No, I can't think of anybody, to be quite honest with you. Sorry about that. That being the case, who was the best match angler you ever fished against, and why? In my time, the bloke I looked up to probably the most was Ivan Marks, who um, sadly died not that long ago. Kevin Ashist, who was always that bit older than me, and... Um, we, we learnt off him. Uh, the Belgians and the French, when it came to bloodworm fishing, we obviously learnt off them. Kevin Ashus is the name I constantly hear, and across generations too, as being arguably the all-time great. Yeah, he was a natural angler. You know, he, he just was. And he won the World Championships in, uh, I think, about 82, something like that, on the Newry Canal in Ireland. Deservedly so. Yeah, Ivan Marks and Kevin Ashus, I'd certainly go with that. What about Benny? Didn't know Benny that well. I mean, I knew Benny, don't get me wrong, but... Um, <laughs> aye, Benny. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what to say, really. Obviously, a brilliant angler, amongst other things, I would imagine. <laughs> Can we now start to take a peek behind the scenes of the squad? What part in determining both team as well as individual honours does the manager and his assistants play? Um, what, determining who fishes? Yeah, determining who fishes to some extent, but I was thinking more in terms of the overall outcome through tactical decisions and team orders. It's not like that really, everybody has an input, and between six or seven people, I mean obviously the manager has the overriding say, if you like, but between us, we sort it out, that's how, how it always were when I, I were there, and um, everybody has a bit to say, and between us you get there. So who was the team manager back in your day? Well, the first manager I fished under was Stan Smith. And he was like a sergeant major. Well, you're a bit frightened of him in a way. I mean, we weren't that old at the time. And uh, he, he were, it were like, I'm sure it was like being in army. And um, he didn't share a lot with you at all. He probably confided in Kevin Ashurst as being his main confidant, if you like. And the rest of us got told what to do. And I think that was two I fished. I fished in Northern Ireland and I fished in Holland under Stan Smith. And then um, the next one was Dick Clegg. Now, that was a completely different kettle of fish, whereas Cleggy confided in everybody and um, you had the chance to contribute a lot more. And uh, it was under Dick Clegg, whereas we did so well in Italy and that was the first time England had ever won the team. So was there a lesson to be learned there then? Just two different people. I mean, I think Stan Smith was unlucky not to win it. And I think Dick Clegg probably... Well, I think the squads that Dick Clegg had fishing for him were probably, overall, a better team. So when you was a youngster, with so many different potential hobbies available to choose from, what was it then that made you take up competitive course fishing? I don't know. You can't answer that one. I mean, I played football when I was a kid played cricket but I mean I, I went fishing from the age of about five 
And I don't know, you can't say, can you? It's not like it's set out for you, you just like what you're doing. You've no thoughts on fishing for England or anything at that particular stage, have you? It's just one thing leads to another, really. So, like a lot of young lads, you give fishing a go, and ability kicks in, allowing you to progress, and eventually you get offered sponsorship by Ted Carter's shop in Preston. Fill in a bit more of the gap now from your initial interest to taking that first major upward step on the ladder. Yeah, well, we were, of course, but we fished for a team, a local side from Preston called Preston Eyes at Walton, and um, we fished all over the country, and we did very well in nationals in the, in the 70s, I was captain for 12 years. We won the second division championship on the River Witham. I think that was late 70s. And we did very well in uh, first division. And finally we won it in the very, very late 80s on the, uh, I think it was Trenton Mersey Canal. That was where it all came from, I suppose. I take it you also fished the big individual matches as well? Yeah, yes, certainly, yeah, as an individual. There was team matches, but team took second place to individual because of the amount you won to win it as an individual. Surely there must eventually come a point when even if you wasn't actively seeking to be an England squad member, you nonetheless feel you might be in with a chance. So when was that for you? Well, in the, in the late 70s, we knew we were getting close because of what we were picking up in wins and stuff. And it was just a matter of awaiting an invitation to go and fish an eliminator which eventually it arrived myself and uh, my friend David Brogdon we travelled to the Newry Canal and we fished Stan Smith's eliminators which was two matches one in the morning one in the afternoon we both finished in the top five and got picked now dedication is a word frequently used to describe people operating at the very highest level which you obviously was Getting there, however, is very different to keeping yourself there once you've arrived. What, then, was your typical schedule to maintain that level of consistency? Well, in summertime, I'd fish, what, four or five matches a week? Saturday, Sunday, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday afternoon. And this, as long as the light lasted, this is what we were doing. And not necessarily all local, either. We, we, we was travelling all over the place. I mean, we could easily fish a match on the Witham on the Saturday and fish a match up in Yorkshire on the Sunday. You know, we used to travel all over the country. It weren't just local. What emphasis then should be put on practice? It's very necessary. To be good at anything, you've got to be doing it. And you've got to be doing it on a very, very regular basis. And if you don't, you won't get anywhere. That applies to anything. And new techniques or developments. Where does taking those on board fit into the grand plan? Well, the only new development that appeared, really, was the advent of the pole. And that would have been somewhere middle 70s, I would have thought, when it started just to take hold. And we were at the forefront of that. I mean, we had carbon poles in the 1970s, and um, we started to win with them. Even though initially it was a continental innovation. Yeah, but for our canals it was perfect. It really was, because it meant you could control your fishing on the far bank. That was the be-all and everything, that was. Well, given a free choice between the pole and the rod for a venue, which could go either way, which of the two would you prefer to use? Or is that a question that can only be answered by circumstances and conditions on the day? Well, it is, very much so. depends where you are. I've no preference, really. If it's the method and you, you need to do it to win, it wouldn't bother me what it was. Right. 
Let's say there's a big match coming up next weekend and you intend to fish it. What would your preparation be to be in with a realistic chance of winning it? Well, you've got to know your venue, where you're going, and you quite simply prepare accordingly. It depends you to think what's going to win it, what type of fish, and just prepare yourself accordingly. That's all you can do. But in order not to get caught out, how do you cover yourself if not for every eventuality, then at least for most of them? Once again, you know, you, you do your own work. Obviously, you only travel to a place for the first time once. The second time, you should know all about it. And we used to do a lot of this when we were practising for nationals. And uh, on a couple of occasions, we practised, we took bloodworm and made it work, and then debanded it. That happened on the River Ancombe, which was the year I got married. I should be able to remember it. We could say it's about 30 years ago. <laughs> You're get in trouble I am, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll cut that bit out for And you. yeah, well, we, we went and practised, we made it work, and um, debanded the bet. They thought it was going to... And it never would have done. It would have been an interesting match, as it was with Bloodworm Band. It was a terrible match. People were getting good points with ounces. I'm right in thinking that on many rivers it's possible to be faced with conditions that can change very rapidly, falling outside that for which you prepared yourself for on the day. How then does a good match angler read the water in front of him and arrive at the best approach for any given situation? Right, let's look at it this way. I'm not saying most, but a lot of fishing matches are won from a cross on either a river or a canal. And, um, you know, whatever method it is to get you there, I mean, you might end up ledgering, you might be using a swim feeder, it might be a waggler, it could be anything. But many a time a pole won't do it. Like if it's a wide canal, like the Gloucester Canal, for example, the pole is only of limited use. You know, it might get your section points, but the win would probably come off another method. I was thinking more in terms of sorting out the best approach in practice than on the match day a deluge comes down and all that gets thrown up in the air. Oh, that can happen, yeah, of course. We didn't fish the River Trent a lot, but we still used to fish it. And um, it's a natural river, so of course one week it can be up and the next week it's fine down. I mean, it's just a matter of the more colour there is in the water and probably the bigger the bait, the bigger the hook, the heavier the line... And as it fines down to become, say, almost gin clear, you have to fine it all down. And uh, that applies to any fishing. From what I've been told, I get the impression that match fishing of the 1970s was possibly the most special time. Certainly it was a transitional time, and one blessed with some very capable and versatile course anglers. A far cry in many ways from how things appear today. Now I know you don't course match fish anymore, which is something we will come to later. That said, what's your take on how it was in your day compared to the present time? Well, these days I don't. But um, fishing on a contrived fishery, as I call them, well, the problem is people aren't travelling like they used to do. I mean, there's two or three venues in the local area here which are, yeah, I suppose they are, carp lakes. The odd one has a few hide and chub and stuff like that. But you get 15 turning up. And it costs you a lot more to fish. And it's nothing like it used to be. People still turn up, but as I say, not many. You'll get 12 on one venue, 20 on another and 15 on another. Whereas in my day, you'd get 150 all in one place. And um, therein lies the difference. And what are your thoughts about the dominance of carp fishing, even in matches these days? 
I'm not bothered, to be honest with you. It doesn't affect me. I don't do it anymore. What I do now is, is salmon fishing in the main. And um, you have to step back and let them get on with it. I have no thoughts at all on getting back into match fishing. But if you was just about to take up fishing as a hobby, would you think differently? Or perhaps go for some other aspect of fishing? And maybe even think of looking beyond fishing altogether? I don't know. It's an unanswerable question. I really don't know. I mean, Dave Brogdon's son takes it very seriously. Him and his friend Chris Gorrell, they fish and they travel to a lot of the bigger venues where you might get 60 or 70 turning up and do quite well. But I don't think it would be for me. But I don't know. You know, you can't answer the question really, can you? No. Who, for you then, were the true match greats prior to, during and after your time? Well, I've already mentioned Ivan Marks and Kevin Ashurst. There used to be a lad from Wigan called Graham Joint, who sadly passed away some years ago. He was the first person I ever saw using a roach pole, so he had a lot to do with the roach pole coming across. During my time, I mean, my friend Dave Brogdon, you know Ian Heaps, you've already mentioned people like that. Then when you start fishing at England level, you're, t you're talking about your Tommy Pickering and Dennis Whites and Bob Nudd and people like that. And um, they all came up from different parts of the country and were all very, very, very good anglers. But what were they also like as individual characters? Or was it taken more seriously than that? Though, as was said earlier, Benny Ashes was both a good angler and a character too. They all took it seriously, but it didn't stop them going out. And from what I remember, yeah, there were curfews when it came nearer the time. Of course there were. But um, we weren't professionals. You know, I mean, fishing was not, and still isn't, professional. It just isn't. So you had a bit of leeway, I suppose. And to single out just one, only because he was so good, though from what I hear not quite up to his dad's standard, Kevin was also a bit of a character too. You're a grand bloke. I wouldn't say it if he were here, but, you know, as long as you don't tell him, he were a grand bloke. And got on with him very well, and a lot of times he was my travelling partner to England matches. Now I've spoken with a lot of people from all areas of the England angling scene, and in some quarters, certainly on the sea angling side, most have come away either disillusioned or with a sour taste with regard to their England experience. For some it was a sudden bias, and for others a case of your face having to fit or jobs for the boys. Does any of that ring true with you? No, I would say not. De in fact, definitely not. From what I can remember, everybody got on. They were an odd bit and bat, I suppose, but you just took it in your stride. And uh, I had no regrets. I don't remember ever falling out with anybody or anything like that. Everything were fine. And certainly no disillusionment, that's a fact. No, I have no complaints about the way we were run. I think Stan Smith in his time and Dick Clegg did an excellent job. And from what I've heard, Mark Addy and uh, Mark Downs are doing a similar excellent job now. Looking back over your whole career now, what was the highlight for you? And that need not be the big win though I think I'd be very surprised if it wasn't. No, it was. It was the big wins. That was what you were there for. I can't think of many highlights that didn't involve winning something. That was it. Winning was everything. I mean, you enjoyed your day, whatever happened, and you couldn't draw a winning peg all the time. And sometimes you'd draw a winning peg and still eff it up sort of thing. But even so, when you, it came together and you won, nothing was better than that. And turning the question on its head now, what about the low point? 
My low point was I fished a World Championship individual match in Holland on the Rhein-Amsterdam Canal. I prepared my initial feed and the first six balls I threw him floated and they certainly weren't supposed to do that. And that was not putting enough clay into it. And honestly, I nearly died. But I tightened it up for the last sort of seven or eight of them and I think I finished fifth or sixth in the match. But maybe the peg was worth more. I'll never know that. But that was that was upsetting to make him an error of that magnitude, which I did. <laughs> that one sticks out. It shows you human. That's the good thing. Yeah, it happens. And if you could have your time over, would you still want to do it all again? I'd say probably yes, because I don't know what else I'd do. To be honest with you, fishing was always my thing. You know, it still is, but a different form of fishing. Certainly, yes, if it followed the same format as what it did. But I don't know whether I could get myself into fishing 12 and 15 peg matches. I don't think I could do that. I'd have to travel and find something bigger. And no regrets? Oh, none at all. Absolutely not. Wouldn't have swapped it for anything. And for any up-and-coming course match anglers wanting to follow your example, what would you say to them? Um, It's just keep your doors down, keep winning... And bring yourself to the attention of whoever it is. That That's all you can do. And if you get noticed, you'll get your chance. And then if you're fortunate enough, it'll go well for you when you do get your chance. There is some luck involved, of course. People have had chances and it hasn't worked out for them. We were fortunate it did. So is there anything extra besides the results you can do to ensure you get noticed in a useful way? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. You've just to let it happen, haven't you? If you're any use, you'll come to their attention, for certain. And to round the interview off, what's Dave Roper up to these days? Right, well, I'm semi-retired now. I work a couple of days a week. Um, My salmon fishing is so important. I love it. I go travel up to Scotland fishing, uh, fish the Tweed. We have a, a length on the tributary of the River Ribble called the River Hodder, which is brilliant. I think I have four or five salmon off it last season. And um, that's me fishing, but not match fishing. I don't think I could anymore. Probably wouldn't be able to see well enough, wouldn't be quick enough. You would be able to do to a certain level, but that's of no interest. You know, if you can't be up there, I I wouldn't want to do it. And that's probably selfish. (laughs) And from the flies you was tying earlier, the focus now is just on salmon, I take it. It is. I love it. What about sea trout? Oh, yeah, we catch sea trout as well on the hodder. I think my biggest one last year were about five and a half pound. Yeah, they're good fun. Is it all fly, or do you use spinners as well? That was on a Rapala. I've had them on the fly, but certainly more on lures. I'm not full sure I catch them. I prefer fly fishing, but um, no, if, if circumstances say do something else, I'll do something else, for sure. So how are the salmon catch numbers holding up? I'm on a backward spiral at the minute. I think I'd... I had nine last season, I had 16 the year before, and I think I had 24 the year before that, so I'm going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> what about taking the salmon tackle abroad? Have you had a go at any of that yet? I go to Thailand fishing. I'm going in April, which is next month, catching catfish, arapamas. My biggest one up to now was 150 kilos, which is a bloody big fish. In English, that's 334 pounds. And I caught that in 2008. And um, my biggest Mekong catfish was just under £100. It weighed £98. 
Now these are proper fish. And um, I have a friend over there, Peter Lyons, who's lived there for seven or eight years. He married a Thai girl. He comes across here salmon fishing for a fortnight, and I go across there catching these things for a fortnight, and that's what we do on a yearly basis. I don't think I could stand a fortnight of that. I had 14 big mecon cats there one morning, then had to put the rod down. I just couldn't take any more of that punishment. The thing is, they, they, you catch one, and the little Thai guides want you to throw out again and hook another. You don't, you want to sit down and have a beer, and <laughs> they knock seven shades out of you. Yeah, <laughs> It's the nearest thing I can think of to tuna fishing because of the way they power down and try to stay deep. Then at Bung Samran, you have to steer them away from the platform legs, otherwise they're under and away. We're fishing there the day after I get there, and uh, my biggest one on there was £75, I think it was. I've got a photograph of it. And the murder. We fish from the bungalows that go down the lake. Yeah, absolutely fabulous. Yeah, uh, Bung yeah. Samran. Fabulous fishing. Once a year is enough. <laughs> what about IT monsters? Expensive, but they have a much better mix of species there too. Yeah, IT monsters, yeah, fish that. And we go into southern Thailand, uh, crabby, and we fish gillums. And uh, that's where I got my big arapama. And last November, not this one just gone, the one before, November 1-0, I lost one equally as big and it was all my own fault. He came towards me and I should have giving it a bit of slack and it didn't and it took off it jumped and just cracked 35 pound line just like that and uh, when you've waited all day for a bite that's not much use is it at least you've had one that was a species well up there on my list but unfortunately it didn't happen though i did see a nice one caught but we did catch pretty much everything else well i've, I've out three and landed one of them and i'm back there again back end of april this this year those amazonian red tail cats are a handful too yeah, I've had them, yeah. I think the biggest one of them were about £60. Yeah, it's all good fun over there. Anything else of note? We caught the um, the horrible long things with we, we, we loads of teeth. I can't remember the name. Alligator gars. Alligator gars, that's it. The the red tails, the Mekongs, uh, the Saraya cats and the Arapamas. No paku or snakeheads. I've hooked snakeheads on the flying, being cracked up every time these bite through the line up. I'm taking some traces this time for that. And I've also, to get my hands on some flies, I've been Googling them. I've, I've got to take some across. You know, like th imitation mice and all this business. <laughs> so that'll be good. I also spent a day fishing for Barramundi. Yeah, I did as well. Uh, boom Mar Ponds. Yeah, I had 15 in the day. Like, things up to about £12. Fabulous fishing. I took a longer travel fly rod with me. Yeah, I bet that were good. Boom my pounds. Yeah, I only fished it the once. Yeah, just the one there. Better than fishing in the UK? Um, no, oh, I wouldn't. I, I couldn't live there. I've been there two and a half weeks. That'll do me. <laughs> it's funny how, from our totally different angling backgrounds, we both end up sharing memories of some great, albeit artificial, fishing half a world away in Asia. And like you. However good the foreign fishing is, I too would prefer to be back on my own patch, even though for you, that patch has switched an emphasis from coast to game. My thanks then to Dave Roper for rewinding the tape back to 1985 for us here.